1: Welcome back to Out of the Cold, the podcast that dives deep into unsolved and solved cold cases in North Texas. I'm Deanna Boyd. So when I last left you, Cheryl Springfield, a 21-year-old recently divorced mother, had been found dead on Christmas morning, nude and strangled with a cord of an iron. Her two-year-old son and 10-month-old niece were found uninjured in the home. At the time, she was living with three roommates, including her former sister-in-law, Cindy, but all had been away at the time of the murder. Now, family members of Cindy's, including her own brother, Scott, Cheryl's ex, suspected a man by the name of Barry Dean Kelly might be responsible. Barry was a former boyfriend of Cindy. He and Cheryl didn't get along, Cindy says. Cindy, however, said she knew Barry loved her, and as such, she doesn't believe he would have hurt Cheryl. She even married him in 1987, almost seven years after Cheryl's murder, after he served time in prison for burglary and aggravated assault against a peace officer. But the marriage would not even last a year, destroyed by what Cindy calls scary behavior by Barry, including kidnapping her from a dime store in October 1987 and terrorizing her over a several hour period. Now, what Cindy didn't know at that time was that four days before Barry kidnapped her, another Fort Worth woman had vanished from her home, a 63-year-old widow by the name of Melva Teams. Melva's daughter, Mary Copeland, had left their house about 7.15 p.m. on the night of October 5, 1987, to head to a lounge. Her mom was at home, planning on taking her routine evening walk. But when Mary comes home shortly after midnight, Melva's blue and white pickup is gone. Inside the house, Mary sees no sign of her mom, but things are askew, concerning because Melva was so particular about keeping her house tidy. There's a butcher knife on the kitchen counter and her mom's checkbook is on the dining room table. And in Melva's bedroom, Mary finds a bra with a missing clasp laying on the messy bed, the mattress pushed off center. Her mom's blue jeans are tossed on the ground and a drawer, which usually holds Melva's 22 caliber handgun, is open and the gun gone. Nor can she find her mom's purse, where Melva usually kept her wedding rings. Melva's family files a missing person report. And later that afternoon, Melva's pickup is found behind the old Panther Hall on the city's east side. There's no key in the ignition, and it's locked. A week and a half later, on October 17, 1987, Fort Worth officers find Melva's body near a dry creek bed off a dirt road northwest of Interstate 35 West and North Loop 820. She's been strangled with a piece of material, presumably ripped from the bottom of her own t-shirt. It's still knotted around her neck when officers find her, the same kind of knot that had been tied in the iron cord around Cheryl's neck seven years earlier. And like Cheryl, Barry has a connection to this family too. Mary would later tell authorities she had met Barry in December 1986. They dated for a couple of months and even had sex inside the home she shared with her mother. But their relationship had ended in February 1987, when Barry married Cindy. But by that summer, Mary told authorities that Barry started calling again. She'd even introduced him to her mother. Now Melva was a generous woman, active in her church. She'd been nice to Barry, even lending him money to buy gas and get his car radiator fixed. But suspicions start quickly pointing toward Barry. Multiple prostitutes familiar with Barry tell police they'd seen him driving a blue and white pickup later identified as Melva's in the hours after her disappearance. One of the prostitutes, who says she shot up heroin and cocaine with Barry inside that truck, claims Barry showed her some rings. He told her he'd gotten them from an old lady and that the truck he was driving would be quote-unquote hot soon. A tire shop owner on Hemphill Street told police that Barry sold him a set of wedding rings later identified as Melva's rings, for $450 in cash. It's money Barry apparently turned around and used to put a down payment on a Ford LTD at a dealership just a block away. But the strongest link would come from a semen stain that Mary spotted on her mother's bedspread on the day of Melva's funeral. Mary would tell authorities that, during their brief relationship, she'd never had sex with Barry in her mother's bedroom. Nor, police determine, did Melva even own that bedspread at the time Mary and Barry dated. Police decided to try a spanking new investigative tool that had never before been used in a Tarrant County criminal case to see if the semen belonged to Barry, a DNA test.
2: Uh, So he was definitely a suspect. We just didn't have enough, you know, to make a murder case on him until the DNA came through, which back then was kind of a miracle for us. You know, it was like, wow, first first case with DNA. It was pretty awesome.
1: That's Paul Kratz. He was the homicide sergeant at the time. He interviewed Barry in January 1988 after his arrest in the case. Obviously, we were trying to get a confession from him, but
2: uh, he. Denied it and was real arrogant and you know, dismissive of any link at all. Uh, you know, regardless of what what I pointed out to him and stuff, as far as the evidence showed, he just con- continued to deny.
1: Kratz, however, had no doubts that Barry had killed Melva.
2: He was just one of those predators. He was he was a doper. And, you know, you could just... Uh, the guy was one of those you could tell was just out for himself, had no conscience whatsoever as far as what he did to her.
1: So Cindy says she'd never heard of Mary Copeland or her mother, Melva Teams, Nor had she seen the news stories about Melva's disappearance and the later discovery of her body.
3: I remember... Uh, the police detective coming to the home and they were questioning me about Barry. And they weren't telling me why. I didn't know what he had done. But I knew he'd done something because detectives were at my house. And I just didn't know anything, you know, because I hadn't seen him.
1: At some point later, she learns that Barry had been accused of murdering an older woman. In fact, the state would later subpoena her to appear at Barry's 1988 murder trial as a potential witness. She remembers sitting in a hallway, wondering what on earth were they gonna ask her about.
3: But then they called me in, and I walked in, and I, I never had to take the witness stand, uh, you know. I, I think they recessed, and they told me I was free to go.
1: So after a 17-day trial, Barry was convicted of murder and ultimately sentenced to life in prison. For Scott, news that Barry was convicted of murdering another woman only reinforced his suspicions that Barry had killed Cheryl, too.
3: When I heard he had done that, that lady, laid out. Know, not the first time he's done it. I'm willing to bet it's not the first time he's done it. You know.
1: Cindy, however, could not accept that Barry had killed another woman.
3: In disbelief, I had a hard time believing it. You know, just because I didn't want to believe it. And even though I had, like I said, like you said, been on the receiving end of his craziness, I, you know, it was disbelief.
1: Still, she says, she couldn't help turning something over in her mind. If Barry had killed Melva, as a jury had believed, could he have been responsible for Cheryl's death, too?
3: There's that guilt, and, you know, you just block it out. Well, I did. I blocked it out with alcohol and drugs. You know, I I just couldn't deal with it. Well, what was the guilt about? I brought him into our lives.
1: So as I mentioned before, police had started looking at Barry shortly after Cheryl's murder. And they continued to look at him throughout the years. In fact, in 2001, Detective Mike Carroll got a search warrant for a sample of Kelly's DNA, citing Barry's connection to Cindy and the fact that he was convicted of murdering another woman, also by ligature strangulation. But the DNA comparisons did not link Barry, Detective Roden says. Still, remember, the DNA profile was found on an item that had already been in the house, so there's no guarantee that it actually even belongs to Cheryl's killer.
0: There were things done attempting to either include or exclude Kelly from being a suspect in the offense. Um, Everything that's been done thus far doesn't do that, doesn't include or exclude Kelly from being involved in the offense.
1: That Barry was later convicted of murdering another woman, also a relative to a woman he had dated and who was also strangled with a ligature, is simply not enough to accuse him in Cheryl's case, Roden says.
0: You cannot pass judgment on someone based on something else that they did. You know, just because a person stole a car once doesn't mean you can suspect them for stealing every car. If we do that, then we go back to the days of, like the movie Casablanca, where it's round up the usual suspects. All right. Um, I mean, it it does make you question, you know, whether he was involved or not. But you have to go with what evidence you have and the facts that you know and you can't really make you cannot make a decision based on something else that occurred that wasn't involved in this case
1: Even more suspicious is Barry reached out to Fort Worth police earlier this year from prison So it's been 37 years since Cheryl's murder more than 15 years since police took his DNA and now suddenly Barry is the one reaching out wanting to talk to police about Cheryl's case and he's dangling a big carrot
0: He reached out to the uh, police department and said that he had information that would solve the case and wanted to speak with us.
1: So Roden and another homicide detective, J.W. Galloway, go and meet with Barry. At the time, he was being held in the Allred Unit in Wichita Falls.
0: Um, I went down and met with Kelly, and it uh, quickly became obvious that uh, he was he was trying to elicit things that he wanted from the prison system. He wanted to be in a certain He wanted to live in a certain place and do certain things, and he was trying to offer up information to get those things that he desired, and wound up telling me nothing. When I told him that I could not do those things for him, that's when he refused to talk to me.
1: So this drives me crazy. What was Barry going to tell them? Why would, after all this time, he suddenly reinsert himself into the case by claiming he had information that could solve it? So I wrote him a letter. He's now in the Montford unit located in Lubbock. I told him who I was about the podcast I was working on and was very upfront with him about the family suspicions that he was responsible for Cheryl's death. I also told him that I had talked to the Fort Worth police who had shared with me how he reached out to detectives earlier this year, claiming he had information that could solve the case yet wouldn't tell them anything about the case when they went to see him. I asked him straight out if he killed Cheryl, and if so, why? And if not, what was his reaction to others thinking he did? I asked him if he'd share with me what this information was that could apparently solve the case, and if not, why. I also gave him a chance to comment on his criminal history, including whether he still contends that he did not kill Melba Teams. And to my surprise, he wrote back. Now, right away, the tone of his letter is accusatory. Is this some kind of an attempt by you and them detectives to use the news media to get me wrongfully charged and convicted? Why do I ask this? Well, here you are writing not all that long after they came to see me, and they were cold case detectives, and you obviously been talking to them, and then you state you'll be discussing me in a podcast on Cheryl Springfield. Why would I be mentioned in a podcast unless it's to try and implement me in the crime somehow, he writes. He goes on to ask if I can prove I'm really a reporter for the Star-Telegram, if I stand for right or wrong, or if I'm just looking for a good story to write about. He says what the detectives apparently failed to tell me about was their quote unquote threatening behavior, how they played good cop, bad cop and such. He says this is why he had nothing further to say to them. Sounds similar to the claims he made in a letter to a judge against a North Richland Hills detective that he bashed in the head with an ashtray. They gave me the impression their only concern was to put the case on anyone they could just to get some publicity, recognition and promote their careers, he writes. He says he won't say anything at this time to me about Cheryl's case, because he's not sure I'm really a reporter, if I stand for what's right and such, and because he feels like I was sicked on him by detectives. So I'm not sure how I feel about the sicked reference, but whatever, I can assure you and him, I'm not working for police, and if I was, I'd probably be making a lot more money. And while he wouldn't talk about Cheryl's case, Barry did talk about Melva's murder and his other past convictions, a lot. He insists he did not kill Melva Teams. He says that the DNA test done in his case wasn't a reliable test, shouldn't have been admissible, and that scientists from the company that performed the test, Life Codes, had flat out lied in their testimony that he was a match. It's an argument that he's made before in appeals of his conviction. In 1992, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals upheld the conviction, ruling that DNA tests are admissible as evidence so long as they meet the same standards as more traditional evidence, like fingerprints or ballistic tests. It was the first DNA-based case to be upheld by Texas appeals courts. In 2003, Buried sought to have a number of other items of evidence in the case tested for DNA, believing it would somehow exonerate them. But his request was rejected after the judge agreed with Tarrant County prosecutors that such tests would not prove his innocence, nor did they meet the standards of the statute that governs post-conviction DNA testing. Barry appealed that decision too, but lost. I bet if you ask each juror in my case, if it was the DNA that convinced them to find me guilty, that they will say yes, he writes to me. A lot of wrong occurred in my case. Lies, cover-up, fabricating evidence, motion violations, jury misconduct, etc. But who cares, he writes. No one. And as long as I stand convicted of Melveteem's murder, the person who really did this runs free. He writes he doesn't know enough to file an effective appeal, and doubts he'll ever find the help he needs due to the case's complexity. I've pretty much come to terms with spending the rest of my life in prison, he says. Kratz, the homicide sergeant who supervised the Melvin investigation, said he's not surprised Barry's still denying involvement. But Kratz says so much more than just the DNA pointed to Barry. It
2: wasn't just the DNA. I mean, we had other links. His fingerprint was in her truck. Uh, you know, he pawns over the property. Uh, you know, it was a, you know, without a confession, it was about as good a case as you could, you could build,
1: evidence-wise. Barry goes on in his letter to talk about Cindy's kidnapping. Now, five years after being sent away to prison for life for the murder of Melva, Barry had actually ridden to the courts, requesting to be returned to Tarrant County Jail so he could deal with three charges that were still pending against him. One of those charges, for aggravated kidnapping, involved Cindy. The other two were for setting a mattress on fire and being caught with a prohibited weapon, a razor blade attached to a toothbrush handle, while in jail awaiting trial in Melva's case. Prosecutors did bring him back, and in August 1993, Kelly pled guilty to all three charges. In exchange, he was given 25 years in prison on all three cases to run concurrent with the life sentence he was already serving. In his letter, Barry says Cindy wasn't truthful about what happened that October day. We've had a lot of issues, but she lied about what really went down, he says. This is not to say that I didn't kidnap her, because if she wouldn't have walked on her own free will and got in the car, I was prepared to drag her ass and throw her in the car, he writes. But he claims he simply followed her and her friend up to the store, then grabbed her by the arm when she came out and told her to come on. He says he didn't kidnap her at knife point, and that she didn't struggle or even scream, just got into his car. He says they went to the beer barn and bought a couple of beers, and then drove out to Eagle Mountain Lake, where they parked, talked, and decided their marriage was over. He writes, On the way back into Fort Worth to take her home, we started arguing, so I pulled up in a parking lot where two patrol cars were side by side and told Cindy to get out and she could tell them whatever. He said Cindy talked to the officers and then he did, explaining that he and Cindy were having marriage problems that would possibly end in divorce. He says the officers asked to search his car and he let them, but they found nothing. Because he wouldn't let Cindy back in the car with him, he says officers drove her to a 7-Eleven so she could call her mother. This is pretty much the extent of the kidnapping, but because I knew my intent, I admit I did this, he writes. Barry doesn't address in his letter why he wanted to dispose of the cases, but he points out that prosecutors, prior to his murder trial, had previously offered to dismiss the three charges if he would only accept their offer, plead guilty to Melva's murder in exchange for 40 years in prison. I wouldn't accept it, he writes. Why? Because I didn't kill Melva Teams. So I wrote Barry a follow up letter with more questions, again pushing him on why he wouldn't share information that would solve Cheryl's murder with police. If you're so concerned about Melva Teams' real killer still running free, what about Cheryl's killer? I asked him. Since that time, I've received a Christmas card from him. Today, I received a second letter. You asked why I wouldn't talk to the detectives. Would you trust and talk to anyone whose behavior reveals they mean you no good? Truth be, I want the truth to come out in both Melveteam and Cheryl's cases, he writes. But Melveteam's is a more personal issue because I knew her, whereas I never knew or met Cheryl. He says he's puzzled why members of his ex-wife's family would suspect he killed Cheryl. He claims none of them felt that way when he and Cindy got married. Now, after I've been locked up 30 years and I haven't had any contact with any of these people you're speaking of, they feel I'm responsible for the crime? That's nonsense, Barry writes. Barry writes that if he would have killed anyone, it would have been Cindy, his ex-wife. Wasn't it three days after the murder of Miss Teams that I kidnapped my wife? Therefore, if I was capable of murder, you can bet I would have murdered my ex-wife as well. So why didn't I? He asks. He also points to his own prison record, writing he's been in a lot of incidents in his 30 years locked up, like fights, but that he's never tried to kill quote-unquote any of these fools in here. But I'm supposed to be capable of taking a life, he asks. He ends the letter by wishing me and my loved ones a Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. So Barry, now 58, will really spend the rest of his life behind bars is unknown. He became eligible for parole back in 2003, but has been denied every time he's come before the parole board. Kratz thinks he's where he needs to be.
2: He ended up with life, and hopefully they keep him for life.
1: Cindy says she hasn't heard from Barry since he went away from Melva's murder. Years back, though, she says she got a letter from the parole board informing her that he was under consideration for parole.
3: And I wrote him back and said, you know, uh, I hope he doesn't get out. I uh, believe he might have killed my sister-in-law. And, you know, my brother still lives in the same place. He's easy to find. I, I think he's a threat to my family.
1: Since his arrest and conviction in Melvis' case, Jan has joined those convinced that Barry killed her sister. My sister was a sasspot. She was sweet, but she was a sasspot. and She put my house on one occasion because she was a little bit bigger than me because I was little we would fight, I usually was at the losing end of that thing. Um, so what I think happened is I think that Cindy and the other girls went out, and I think they all went out drinking or doing whatever they were doing. And I think that around 2 o'clock, Barry got drunk, and I think he came to my sister's house, and she opened the door. And knowing her, she he probably said something, and she probably said something else. And the fight was on. Kratz said he wouldn't be surprised if Barry has more skeletons in his closet.
2: He's a predator, I wouldn't be surprised, uh, you know, what he was involved in before. He's what I generously describe as scum of the earth.
1: For now, Jan continues to call police monthly, schooling every new cold case detective about her sister's case and why she thinks Barry is responsible. It's not Barry, I don't know what I'm gonna do because i wasted my whole life being pissed off at somebody. She says she won't stop until justice is done. I won't let it go. I won't. I can't. I won't. I won't. I will not. I promised her. Thanks for listening. Join us next month for a new episode of Out of the Cold. Out of the Cold is produced by Steve Wilson, edited by Lee Williams, and written and narrated by me, Deanna Boyd.